From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. As an added bonus this week, this is the second half of our Q&A discussion held at Edinburgh's Signet Library on Thursday the 25th of May. The panel of Jonathan Wilson, Jonathan Liu and Jonathan Northcroft was hosted by football writer Daniel Gray. We're going to move to the topic of Brendan Rodgers. The question was going to be Brendan Rodgers, why, or something. But instead of being so philosophical, Jonathan Northcroft, you were reporting, writing from Liverpool when Rodgers was there. With this season at Celtic, is he rehabilitated now? Yeah, very much so. And and it's been an unexpected rehabilitation to this extent that, you know, I I think he's, he's forged a reputation in Scotland, but... He's really is back on the map in terms of being talked about for English jobs. And, and that's good for Scottish football because the received wisdom was, you know, when he went to Celtic, that that was going to be possibly a sort of death knell of the, of the career and the opposite has happened. Um, I was actually thinking about Brendan when we were talking earlier about the cult of managers because it does seem to me that he's introduced that a little bit um, up here, that he's, he's, he's very much played on his kind of... Uh, his piss cult of personality. Um, he, when he was at Liverpool, he wasn't shy about styling himself as a as a new Shankly, as a messiah, and he and he does seem to have done the same here. But th- th- there's a funny thing about Brendan, where for for start, I think he's toned it down in Scotland. I think he's matured. I think he's he, he's learned from his Liverpool experiences and become a much better manager for it. Uh, there's still a, a slightly sort of cheesy element to him at, at, at times or at least that we see in, in, in public. But knowing people that work with Brendan, knowing players and knowing members of staff at Liverpool, one thing that always struck me about him was, was how much he inspired the people around him. So even when he was being called, you know, David Brent, that's not the impression that people at Liverpool had. Steven Gerrard loved him. You know, Jamie Carragher was having him, as, as the Scousers would say. And to win over two kind of um, sort of older, cynical players like that always impressed me and as I say I know people that have worked for a long time with Brendan and have been sort of very devoted to him so I, I think he really does have something and, and and that's just talking about his personality I think I think as a, as a football coach he's very interesting he's been he's become I've seen an evolution from being somebody that was trying to I think copy uh, Barcelona a little bit be sort of Pep Guardiola light when when he was at Swansea and then coming to Liverpool um, and 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 evangelizing possession at all costs and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think Luis Suarez changed him, actually. I think having a player of Suarez's caliber, uh, he didn't play in exactly the way, the the sort of patient possession way that Brendan wanted, but was just so effective. Um, I think that opened his eyes to becoming a more pragmatic manager. And, And from what I've seen at Celtic and Celtic playing against... Aberdeen, I've obviously watched those games quite closely. I mean, he, he's innovative. He does something quite different in, in different games. I know he finds it a challenge, an enjoyable challenge, facing teams five or six times a year that you don't have to do in England because as a coach, that means that you have to, to try and come up with um, with different sort of systems and, and, and so on. And I think he's done that very, very well. Um, I like how he's championed young players here. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Kieran Tierney, Callum McGregor, uh, Armstrong sort of triumvirate that he's, he's, he's developed there. I think that's really, that's really important. That's fantastic for, 
the Scottish football, and and he he looks to me now like somebody who's comfortable as a, in his own skin. He never quite, and it's very hard for Liverpool managers, but he never quite was able to wear the the cloak of Shankly, even though he he styled himself as that. It, it, I think he actually was crushed by the pressure that he created for himself. But I can see him now entirely happy with where he is, um, having gained that kind of maturity and and and, and self assurance. Um, that's that's come, and he had to, he had to start winning as a manager as well. He was a promising coach, but he'd never won anything until he came to Scotland, and he's now very much um, put that into his, his armory. And I think it's really important. That, you know, I'm, I'm sure Rangers fans might not agree, but I think it's important for Scotland that he stays for another year because he does create attention south of the border. He does help sell our game um, outside Scottish shores. And he's just doing interesting things. He's developing good players. And, and I know that the challenge that he set Celtic when he arrived was, you know, we can, we've can we already won five titles in a row, but let's try and win better. Let's try and win differently. And I think that's really clever, like a coach that, that can find a way to be ambitious, you know, even when you come into a winning environment. So there's really interesting things going on with him at the moment. Um, and I hope he has a knock-on effect that, that maybe others try and play a bit more of his style of football and, and, and look at what he's done with the young players. Um, and and I just, although I hope he has an off day at the weekend against Aberdeen. <laughs> um, you mentioned that about you hope he stays long longer here than, than this initial year. Is the strong rumour within the world of journalism that that's not the case? No, I think uh, he wants a crack at the Champions League um, and feels that he can do something special with Celtic there, uh, which is, you know, as I said before, he's never been short of ambition and the fact he, f- he thinks he can do something in the Champions League is great. You know, uh, why not? Um, I'd say lesser coaches than him have actually done quite well with Celtic in the Champions League. So, so why why can't why can't he do it? But uh, I know I, I know that before he took the Celtic job, he had his eye on the Southampton job, which also became available at the same time. And I think he might have taken the Southampton job had it been offered to him first. But he wouldn't look as low as that now. I think if he comes back to England, it'll be for one of the bigger clubs. Jonathan Wilson, can anything that Celtic do ever emulate 1967 that that keeps coming up while we're here? I mean, were Celtic to win the Champions League next season, they they won't. But were they to do that, that clearly would be a great achievement just because the economics have have changed. But, I mean, realistically, no. Um, I think to be the first British club to win the European Cup to beat that Inter in that style it was such an enormous achievement. And I, I think I think as well, I mean, although they, they obviously ended up losing, the, the games against Racing, they're iconic games. I mean, maybe not for the right reasons, but um, for, 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 for my book, Range of Dirty Face, I, I watched uh, extended highlights of the three games. I'm, I'm not sure you can get the... You, you watch all of the, of the playoff game, the third game, uh, which is an astonishingly violent game. There's also some great football played. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess people know about that, but I, I spoke to Chango Cardenas, who scored the winner for Racing. And I think his story is, you know, it's, it's one of the great football stories. I think it's a bit unknown, that, or certainly unknown here, um, that he was, a, he, was, he was a teenager, he was a kid. Um, he never won anything again after that. That was, that was the, the peak for him. Uh, you know, Racing didn't win anything until 2003. Yeah, they went 30, uh, 46 years without another trophy. Uh, 
because I mean, I'm sure this is not the reason, but it's an interesting coincidence that the, the night that they, they beat Celtic in Montevideo, um, fans of Independiente, the, the great rivals of Racing, broke into the Racing Stadium and buried the bodies of seven cats uh, to, to curse the club. And as time went by, there was various exorcisms and they, they kind of looked for these corpses and they found six of them. And it was only in 2003 when they were redeveloping a stand, they found the seventh corpse. And that year they won the league after 46 years. But Cardenas is now, he's, a, he's an estate agent in, in uh, Floresta, which is a very, you know, ordinary, ordinary is a kind word for it. He's a very ordinary barrio of Buenos Aires. So, you know, I went to interview and went to this, I mean, just imagine the, the most bog standard estate agent. So you go in and there's like, it's sort of this, these sort of um, grey carpet tiles on the floor that clearly should have been replaced about 10 years ago. There's this very sad rubber plant. Uh, there's a desk where a secretary might sit, but he appears not to be able to afford one. And then through in the back room yeah, is, is his office. And it's just a desk and sort of grubby white paint. And you know, there's a, one phone on the desk and there's some papers. And then on the wall facing him, he's got three pictures on the wall. And one of them is a painting of him scoring. And I'm sure you've seen the goal, but you know, it's, it's a brilliant goal. You know, he hits it with the outside of his right foot from 25 yards, flies into the corner. So there's a painting of, of that goal against Celtic Montevideo. Then there's um, a sort of a double-page spread of El Grafico, the Argentinian uh, football magazine, that's sort of a diagram of the goal and then some text explaining it. And then actually the thing that's most sort of crushing, the thing that, you know, when I was interviewing, I was, my eyes kept going to it again and again. He, uh, El Tiempo, which is sort of the Argentinian equivalent of Time magazine, they award their people of the year. And so in 1967, he was one of El Tiempo's people of the year. So there's a photograph of him in his racing kit, sitting on this stool, looking very, very awkward. And on one side of him is this huge, fat comedian dressed as an angel. And on the other side of him is Meta um, Massa, who, who was 22 at the time. And she was the first Argentinian to win any of the big three uh, world beauty pageants. She was Miss International. Uh, so every day, every minute of every day, when he looks up from you know, a, a deal for a, a duplex in, in Floresta falling through. He looks up and thinks, that's what I used to be. And I, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how that doesn't crush him. But um, I, anyway, I assume it, but no, they can't repeat 67. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to move on to, before I come to more audience questions after, after this little section, Jonathan Lewis Datis of club football at the moment, particularly at the top. I mean, I watch most of my football lower than the top, especially when enforced by Middlesbrough's relegation. Um, is this disconnect... Is the game at the very top terminally disconnected from the public? I, th I think it's, it's certainly disconnected from its traditional public. I think there's a real uh, sense of alienation. A lot of, uh, a lot of big clubs between... What, what you might call the, the, the traditional fans and, uh, and, and the club itself. Uh, I mean, you have to go, you go to Anfield or, or Stamford Bridge and, uh, or the New Camp, which is, which is a good example. And for a lot of, for a lot of people, it's, it's almost a kind of tourist destination these days. And, you know, you, you buy your, your, your fancy package and you, you go, go and see a game at the New Camp and they go and win 6-2. And, and it's kind of, is, is it is it still really a, a, you know a sporting organisation in, in that sense? 
um, I mean, th this idea that that, um, that football is, is kind of I don't, it's sort of a hackneyed idea that football is you know the working man game, but I think the globalization of of the fan base has has created different pockets of support, whereas you know somebody who who walks up to the end of the road and you know walks up to Anfield for, you know lives five minutes away you know are they as much of a fan as somebody in China who gets up at two in the morning and watches all, all 60 60 of their games in a season and I think that kind of stratification of how you know how fans follow games and, and what, what it actually means to be a fan that's actually really interesting because this idea that this is a club and these are the fans doesn't really hold true anymore should we now see it as two different or even more different types of football? So there's that stratospheric football, and then there's the football I go to, which very often is still the working man's game and is does have those values. Should we just sort of say, that's it, it's two different things, really? Well, the, the, the difference between the two is, I mean, is, is actually it's really startling. And, and I think you find, uh, certainly in the part of South London where I live, that, that a lot of people go to... To, to clubs like Dulwich Hamlet or, or Clapton because it, it, it's felt like somehow they're, they're more authentic. And, and I think this, this, this search for authenticity, whatever that is, it's, it's this kind of ethereal quality. Um, but it, I, I do feel like at a lot of big clubs, they do feel slightly less authentic. I, I, I mean, if you look at uh, Manchester United, for example, they're their primary business is is not really putting out a winning football team. It's providing a, a kind of, you know, a vessel, as it were, a vessel, an advertising space for, you know, other companies or, you know, to to to, to, to sell their brands. It's, and, and in that sense, it's more like a kind of a telenovela or, 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 or a media organization than a football club. Um, I, think I've, I think I've gone on yeah. too, long, too long there. I mean, not, not all... Could there be a sort of ex extinction-level event such as a match-fixing scandal, a doping scandal that really stops that march in its tracks? Or is the Premier League monster unstoppable? And where next for it? A, a game abroad, two games abroad, what? I think it's unstoppable. I, I, I think it was explained to me once by a sort of TD markets expert that football, is live sport is pretty much the only thing now that, that, that you can get people to sit down and watch in real time on a television anywhere in the world. You know, everything else whether it's quality drama um, you know, films, whatever we consume now online, we consume at our own pace, we, we do, you know stream everything and we, and we do it when we want to, but football's the one thing where you can, across the globe you can get people in a time and place and you can, you can make sure that they're watching. And the value of that for advertisers is is incredible, and because you know English football, the Premier League has won the lottery and become the preeminent league in the preeminent sport that is doing this thing that nothing else in the world is able to do. I think makes it uh, a global force that's only going to sort of in increase in power. Um, and then I think also, if we're talking about alien alienation, I think society is changing a bit as well. If if you look at music as being or other great sort of national entertainment. Well, you know, gigs have become very sort of corporatized events. I was a student in this city where uh, when Nirvana came and played in quite a small venue and I couldn't be bothered going that night because, you know, Pixies were coming the next week and I, I, I've cursed myself for it ever since. But the very notion of a band like that, who weren't at their peak at the time, but they were big and they were playing, you know, down in uh, the 
kind of little, little venue beside the railway station. It just wouldn't happen. That would be an O2 Arena job. It would be, you know, very sort of corporate tickets and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think our tastes are changing, and, and football again is at the front of that. The only way it's going to change is if if supporters decide that they want it to change. But the other thing I see is fans celebrating money. I see supporters far from being bothered about Paul Pogba's wages and the money that his agent gets actually shrugging their shoulders and, and almost being proud Manchester United supporters that you know we can afford to pay this you know that that somehow makes us better than better than other clubs so it, it's almost as if fans want this to happen which puzzles me baffles me a little bit um, but until fans you know us the public are the only people that can change it I don't see that happening anytime soon okay we come to the audience now please for further questions um, just near you Vincent t- to your left and then I'll come to you, sir, at the front. Jonathan Wilson. In uh, Inverting a Pyramid, you uh, discuss how football tactics are basically cyclical, how basically an idea that came up in the 80s, is, for example, Carlos Bilardo's 86 Argentina team, how that back three they had is now basically Antonio Conte's team, and how basically the same solutions just keep coming up over and over again. What do you see has been the, the next tactical idea that was a solution to that, be to be redeveloped and come up with a solution to what teams are doing now. Do you see uh, us going back to 4-4-2, big long ball up, get it in the mix, or do you see that coming back into fashion? Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree that Conte is a repeat of Bilardo. Um, I mean, I, I, obviously they both play a back three, uh, but I think there are differences. But I mean, anyway, the, the, to, to, to address the, 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 the more major part of the question, um, I think often with a tactical innovation, the you know, the uh, the solution to it, you know, I, I, th- I think I think the way tactics develop is are you, you set out a proposal. You know, this this is a way of playing that is working. How do we stop that? And then you know, when you work out a way of stopping it, you work out a way of getting around the stopping of it. Um, and, and and so, is it cyclical or is is it is it sort of um, more dialectic? I think it's probably more dialectic. So, so the, I guess the question is, how do you stop a three-four-two-one, and why has that been so successful in the modern age? I think the reason it's been successful is actually it's, it's it's sort of a couple of things that have gone together. One is the nature of modern fullback that they're not really defenders; you know, they're they're, they're, they're wide players who cover the whole flank, um, and that means you don't really need wingers. And so, if you if you do that, where where you actually need cover is you know you need an extra central defender. So you you know. Uh, a back four now is really a back two with these two wide players who get get on. So you make that back three, it's got a little bit more security there. And then the the other issue, um, and this goes back to, to Brendan Rodgers actually, something that he did at Liverpool, the, the sort of two creators, uh, which you know, at Chelsea you've got Azar and you've got Pedro. Uh, and that's very difficult for opponents to pick up. But if you have, even if you have two holding midfielders there, those players have such freedom to pull wide, to find space. If you, if you think of 4-2-3-1 as being the sort of general default before this season in, in the Premier League, if you're playing a, a 3-4-2-1 against that, the, the little pockets of creative space that you can exploit are sort of in front of the opposing fullbacks, to the side of the um, holding midfielders. They're not really in the zone of the centre-back. It's not obvious he picks them up. And... and so that's why a, you know, a huge number of teams, I think 17 teams this season in the Premier League, have, have tried playing with a back three. Because people have realised, oh, actually, there's no obvious solution to this. So, you know, 
how how do you combat wing backs? You play wing backs. So you've seen teams. I think I think eleven teams this season have played a back three against Chelsea, uh, and that that they tend not to win because Chelsea are better at it. They've got better players and more used to it. Um, but when Tottenham, who I think are pretty much the only team to have really outplayed Chelsea, while Chelsea have had the back three, you know they did it playing three four two one. How do you stop those two number tens? I think that's a much harder question to answer. And I don't think there has been a satisfactory solution. I think the way Mourinho played in the FA Cup was interesting, playing what was effectively a back six. We've seen Tony Poulos do that, uh, where you have uh, you play a back four and then have your, your sort of very attacking fullbacks. Uh, or maybe you play with three holding the fielders and you know, you're, you're overmanning in a key area, which is you know, sort of a very basic way of of dealing with a, a tactical issue. And that's something that Mourinho tried at Real Madrid, the, the, the Trivote, uh, the, you know, the, um, the, the, you know, the, the three holding midfielders, uh, which was very unpopular among, among Madrid players. They thought it was too defensive. Um, but maybe that is the way you stop those those two. So uh, the short answer is I, I don't know, but there are some possible, possible paths for what might go down. Okay, we've got a questioner at the front who was uh, second there. Um, John Terry, captain, leader, Muppet. <laughs> what, what were your views on, on if you can bring yourself emotionally to talk about his farewell game? Um, I'll go to Jonathan Liu. Oh, and this is this is the classic case of can can you separate the man from you know from the artist if if you you can <laughs> the man from the Muppet <laughs> the, man from the man from the Muppet exactly. Uh, I mean I. I it's it's hard to it's hard to say you know that, that John Terry's not one of the, you know one of the great defenders of his of his generation in English football. Uh, anyway, uh, I have a, I have a, you know I have lots of problems with him as a person, um, you know as as a, as, a, as a character, and and I, I don't think this is one of those cases where uh, you know you can you, you know the, the the character kind of influences the way he the way he plays. If that makes any sense. Um, I, th- I think it, it's possible to say that he was a great defender and, you know, really, really good at heading balls that are already on the floor. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of his, his, little, his little calling card. Whilst also saying that, you know what, I wouldn't want to spend any time with him as a person at all. <laughs> I'll take another question, please. But so just on, on Terry and the, um, you know, if, if, if the question's less about Terry, more about the the, the, the nature of the farewell, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of things to get annoyed about. One of which is that people don't understand what the 26th minute is. The 26th minute is a minute that goes between 25.01 and 26. And he went off in the 27th, but he started off in the 27th minute, he eventually went off in the 28th minute. So, so that, that, Were you that, going around in like the millennium, when yeah. everybody was celebrating the millennium, going, you're a year, you're a year too early? Yeah. No, I was. And, and so was my dad, who's an accountant. Um, and, and I'm right. So uh, I got two New Year's. Huh? Um, uh, but, you just, uh, yeah, the... Terry, I think, is, is unfortunate in that he sort of has these ideas of what a great triumph would look like. And then he tries to put them into, into action. And the problem is that these great emotional moments... They need to be spontaneous. They need to be felt. 
So, you know, his, his celebration on the pitch in 2012 was he'd imagined in his head, what would it look like when I captain Chelsea to win the Champions League? Well, I'd be there wearing my kit and my shin pads and my captain's armband, and we'd all be dancing around the pitch. And so he went and did that, even though he hadn't played in the game. And of course, it renders it meaningless. Uh, and I, I, so we, were, we talked about this before, but um, when Dave Mackay left uh, Derby, you know, he, he, so he led them to promotion, being named Joint Football of the Year when he, when he led Derby to promotion, helps them to the league title. And his farewell, Derby gave him a toaster and shake his hand, and that's it. And I think there should be more toasters in modern football. <laughs> okay, another audience question. Okay, just uh, uh, here, Vincent, to your left. And then there's one back there afterwards. Cheers. Uh, in all the life and all the stadiums you've been to, which has been the one that when you've walked up to it has just given you that kind of wow, goosebumps factor? Jonathan Buff. And why? Um, I, th- I think it's a generational thing. Um, for me, it's a San Siro. And that, that's because, you know, I was a, I was a, probably a child watcher, well, not a kid, a, a, a young man watching... That brilliant James Richardson, you know, Football Italia show when Gaza was was in Italy uh, and Milan were just the ultimate team and the San Siro still looks like a spaceship that's just landed and, you know, from a foreign galaxy to play, but you play football. It's an incredible stadium. It, it's also kind of concrete and, and tatty and could do with an upgrade, but I think that's part of its charm. I, I was there for the Champions League final last year and I still got that that kind of, you know, visceral gut thrill of, of, of being there and, and I would trade it for you know for the new camp I would I would trade it for the Bernabeu uh, for anything uh, just, and it's got a fantastic old sort of museum where um, all this sort of it's just so tastefully done this Italian museum with all the beautiful old shirts in Milan and into Milan and it was very very understated um, I was there with Manchester United um, where they, they the, the fans somehow smuggled a motorcycle into the into the stadium um, in different parts and then assembled it and, and sort of waving it around in, in, in the tribunes. It's a crazy place, incredible atmosphere, but it's, it's, it, you can't define why football stadiums are special. I think that's what, exactly what your question reflects. It's just something you feel when you walk up there and for maybe the San Siro. I mean, I, I was actually going to say the San Siro as well. I, I'd never been until the Champions League final uh, last season. Yeah. Uh, and there's also one of the advantages it has is it's in you know when, when you when you get off the uh, the metro you've got to walk up to it of I don't know 400 yards something like that and you can see it you know it, it's not that it's hidden by housing it's just you come up the, the steps of the metro and there it is and it's you know it's exactly what you saw in the early 90s and I guess because it's so distinctive with the you know the spiral stairs outside um, so yeah I, I was gonna gonna say Sancero as well if you want, I mean, I think both Bomanera and the Mon- and the Monumental uh, in, in Buenos Aires, uh, yeah, because they are distinctive. And cause you, again, because they're old and tatty, you sort of smell the history off them. But yeah, I, I would have said San Siro if you hadn't said it. Um, I'd, I'd say the San Paolo in, in Naples, which you, you, you get off the metro station and it, it looms in front of you and, and you can just kind of, you know, it, it's, it's about... Sort of quarter of a mile, sort of ten minute walk, something like that, and yeah, it's it's you, you pass all the street stalls and the uh, scarf vendors, and, and you you, 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 actually, you can actually see people sort of you know like like in that Lowry painting, yeah, people actually converging on the stadium, um, and that, that visually that, that was quite arresting. Um, and I mean, the other one I'd say was is, is the Maracanã because in, in in contrast, the Maracanã sounds 
strange, you know, given that it was it once held 200,000 people, but it actually kind of creeps up on you. It's, it's, it's hidden amongst all these, you know, uh, these back streets and tall, you know, tower blocks. And, and so you, you come around a corner, oh, shit, that's the American R. And, um, and that, that, that's quite a nice effect. Okay, there's a question just back there, just behind you, Vincent. No votes for Central Park, Howden Beef again, disgusting. Um, will the decision in the medium or longer term to give a Champions League spot to Europa League winners ultimately help the trophy? Because basically the Champions League is really dull these days, whereas teams in the second, third, fourth tier of Europe actually wanted to win the trophy rather than a spot in the Champions League. I didn't quite get the Champions League. No, sorry, I, I think I, it went a bit quieter. Did you get that? I, I, I oh, did, sorry. yeah. So, so sorry, sorry. It's a really interesting point and something I, I, I guess I hadn't really thought of too much. Um, I mean, it, it, it did make, it did give the the, the, champ, the the Europa League a kind of presence from an English point of view that it hasn't had before. I think this was a year it stopped being, you know, Thursday night football joke, but but you're right because that doesn't that that doesn't reflect how the rest of Europe has seen that that trophy, particularly the Spanish and and, and Eastern, Eastern old Eastern Bloc clubs. Um, I, I instinctively don't like, you know, the the any kind of the linking between the Europa League and Champions League. The Champions League clubs going into it when they get knocked out of the group stage and the uh, the the you know getting your place in the Champions League because of it. But the, the only thing I'd say is that if you're going to hand out Champions League spots for somebody that's finished fourth. Well, you know, uh, at least I th I, to me, winning the Europa League is is a bigger um, achievement than that. Um, any anything for me that, that 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 stops us just focusing on one or two tournaments? Because you know, I'm obvious bias to an Aberdeen fan, but I loved the Cup Winners' Cup. I thought that was a just. A very logical tournament because the best team at cup football domestically then played against the best European teams at cup football, and the winner was quite obviously the best team in Europe. Forget the European Cup. So, but you know, I, I think back then we had three brilliant European trophies, and the Super Cup had a respect that it didn't have. It doesn't have these days. You know, it was over two legs, and it, it really meant something. Um, so, anything that gives the Europa League. Presence. I suppose I've contradicted myself about twice now in this answer because um, I hadn't thought about it before. Um, it, it, maybe it's, if it's done one thing, it's sorted out the the English attitude towards the Europa League. Anyway, maybe maybe it'll help English football get up to speed with the rest of Europe and respect the trophy properly. It kind of falls into what I, I describe as uh, what I call the goal music fallacy. And the, the idea is you, you'll have been at a football game where, where the goal is scored and they play music afterwards. The, the implication being that the goal is somehow not enough of a celebration. It's not enough of a reward and, and it therefore has to be followed by music. If the Europa League was, was worth winning in, it, in its own right, then then giving an extra prize at the end of it kind of devalues it, which is why I'm also against um, you know, giving a Champions League place to the FA Cup winners. It's, if, if it's worth winning in its own right, it's, it doesn't need that extra prize. Okay, another audience question, please. We've run out of audience. Oh, there's one. Uh, what's the panel's view of the situation where players seem to be able to gang up to get rid of managers? I'm thinking of Chelsea last year with Jose Mourinho and this year the beginning of the season with Leicester and Claudio Ranieri, which I find really quite despicable, but some wiser people may have another view. Jonathan, because Leicester's mentioned, I'll come to you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, okay, so I, I agree with you in principle. 
it's not something I like to see. Um, I, I think player power and, and the the loss of authority um, from anyone towards players, most of all coaches, is, is something that's probably damaged the game. You know, players are their own little brands and companies and you can't touch them. So from all of those points of view, I'm with you. But from the specific Leicester point of view, being quite close to that situation um, and knowing the players and knowing the, the reasons for the club's success in the first place, in some ways I would say it was the opposite, that, that, that perhaps Claudio Ranieri ended up being the individual in all of that that was acting for Claudio Ranieri and, and maybe not, not for others. And, and, and I, don't, I don't mean that in any particular um, you know, political way other than that I think he won his, he won his trophy, he, um, he, he made changes to something that really did work at Leicester, which was something where the whole club pulled together. Um, it was a very democratic club under Nigel Pearson that he took over where everyone had a say. You know, the, 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 the sports science guys were allowed to define the, the, the training schedule. The players had a say in it rather than just the manager. Um, there, there was a sort of collegiate approach towards scouting, um, lots of days off, lots of trust involved. And after winning that title, I think Claudio um, then started trying to do things his way. And there was a sense, I know, among the players that that Claudio persona in, that we loved in the media and probably the public loved didn't necessarily go down so well in the dressing room because you got this guy with this kind of comedy act that became a little bit tired with the dilly-dongs that, that seemed to be more about advancing him than than the players. I, I know those players, and I think they're actually, um, by and large, a very admirable, very good bunch of individuals. And it came to a situation where it had broken down, um, and you can't, you, you, you can't sack 25 players, you can sack a manager, and that was the, the sort of real politic of it. And, and my last thought on it is that um, he, Claudio did get to the same point with the Chelsea players that he worked with back in 2004. I think they'd maybe... Well, look at his management history. His management history is a fantastic achievement for a year and then it tends to tail off. So I think what happened to him at Leicester was just a pattern that's followed him throughout his career. Jonathan Wilson, player power, a new thing? Um... Up to a point. I mean, um, obviously, you know, the the end of the Italian transfer system um, ha has given players greater power. But I mean, you know, you as a Middlesbrough fan will, will know that Wilf Mannion went on strike to try and get moved to Oldham uh, in 1947. Uh, so you know, players have always. You know, tried keeping to it topical for me. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah, Wilf Mannion reference for the for the teenagers. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, yeah, it, it's part. You know, the fact that players can force managers out is part of a much wider trend. A of that players are just more powerful. That that players expect to move during their careers. You know, very few players would would end their career. You know, very few players would would you know, join a, a club's youth ranks and then still be there at age thirty five. Um, you know, there's an expectation you play for three or four clubs, and, and nobody sort of sees a three or four club career as being making you a journeyman or something who's necessarily difficult or anything like that. That's just the way it is. That, that the, the, the finances of the game encourage that. That there is a, a very obvious food chain, and players obviously benefit from signing on fees, and so do agents. Um, 
but also you know the, the the life of the manager is shorter so it's possible to oust the manager uh it's possible to create that pressure much earlier um you know um yeah i know martin samuel often talks about this at west ham that they got relegated under John Lyle. Nobody thought John Lyle should be sacked. John Lyle was just the West Ham manager. Sunderland did a similar thing. It wasn't, you know, Sunderland had 11 relegations in my lifetime. Um, and it's only recently that sort of necessarily meant the manager gets sacked. Um, you know, even when they got relegated under Peter Reid in 97, it was, well, you know, the players aren't really good enough. Give Reid another season. And then, you know, they got to the playoff final. And then the following year went up. And were very successful subsequently. Alan Brown relegated Sunderland twice in the 60s, but was essentially allowed to continue. So the, and I think it's a worrying trend. You know, you, you know, obviously it depends on the specifics. I'm sure you're right about Leicester, but uh, you know, I do wonder in the modern world. You look at how long it took, for instance, Herbert Chapman took five seasons to win something at Arsenal, who were the richest club in, in, in England at the time. You look at um, how long it. You know, it took uh, Shankly three years to get promoted. Clough's first season at both Derby and Forest, they finished mid-table in the second flight. Uh, Revy took three years to get promoted with Leeds. Um, so you're talking about some of the real greats of the English game. When Paisley replaced Shankly in 74, in 75, Liverpool won nothing. They kept finishing second. You can easily imagine now the, the mood would be, oh, yeah, he hasn't got it. He's not, he's not tough enough. He's not going to carry them over the line. Busby um, at United, although they won the Cup in 48, they had five seasons in a row when they finished second. But now people say, well, he's not a winner. You know, he hasn't got the hard edge to carry them over the line. So does that necessarily mean you should show patience? Probably not. But does it mean that the impatience of the modern age would have uh, undermined some of the great managers of the past? Yeah, absolutely it does. Time for one more audience question. First up was... I might just squeeze two. Um, I'm, I'm a Hearts fan. I'm, I'm currently living through the, the new regime of um, Ian Cathro in charge with uh, director of football above him. The man next to me is an, an Arsenal fan whose manager is doing everything they can to fend that off. Um, what do you see as the model of the future going forward? I know it's very European to have a director of football, but Jonathan is there going, going to be a success in Britain? Yeah, different routes to manage, being a manager as well, Cathro having come in with a different background to others and use of technology and things like this. Yeah, well, um, as, 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 as Cathro, you know, Cathro obviously invited a lot of um, a lot of criticism when he when he started. Um, as he as he harvested Don Cowie's organs for for energy yet? Has, have the machines taken over? Are they like are, are they are they all hooked up to, to giant treadmills and you know so. Uh, there's, and it's interesting that you, you mentioned Wenger actually, because I, I mean I went to I went to Ajax last week uh, and spoke to Mark Overmars, who's who's kind of their their director of football, and he he seemed almost kind of surprised that the director of football model hasn't essentially become predominant as, as it has in a lot of countries, but he was surprised that it hadn't become you know the go-to model in England, you know, say for for a few clubs, and I, and I think that's the, the role of the the manager these days is so little to do with things like recruitment or long-term strategy. Uh, and, and this goes back to the previous question, actually. The, num the number one job for, for a coach these days is to get the best out of the, the players that they've got. And once they, once they can no longer do that, there's actually very little, there's, there's very little uh, you know, point keeping them on. 
um, and which, which is why Wenger is actually one of the one of the very he'll, he'll be one of the very very last I think because the amount of autonomy and control he has over Arsenal the the, the beds that they sleep in on on away trips the length of the grass on on the training field you know the the food that they serve in the canteen there will never be again a club that is run so overwhelmingly to the whims of one guy and which is why you know they've got a huge problem when he leaves almost as much as probably you know, possibly even more than than United had when Ferguson went because you know, Ferguson was delegating quite a lot to, you know, by by the end of his his reign and that that's why Arsenal are in you know in many ways the, the kind of the, the last model of of what what an old fashioned manager once was yeah I'm, 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 I'm trying to be quick on it as well but I think if ever a club needed a director of football right now it is actually Arsenal because they've got the biggest sort of changeover they're going to have in, in, in probably in their history when, when Wenger leaves so they so obviously need somebody that's going to come and, and plan for that but also kind of harvest the knowledge because I know that one of the problems that Man United had when Fergie left was running that gigantic club it, it was all up there you know, he was like the old gangland boss that wrote nothing down. All the telephone numbers were in his head, and there was just nothing. There was no scouting notes. You know, there was no roadmap, um, and, and you can see that in the way they've lost the way. I know that Wenger um, still, you know, Wenger used to be seen as at the forefront of sports science, and of course, times caught up with him, and he's been bypassed. And he still writes down, um, you know, players' kind of physical performance in a little notebook. So every other club's got it on a computer system and, and, and it's all, you know, printouts and apps and so on. Wenger will open up his little black book and say, well, I see that you did this in training today and he's, he's sort of annotated it. And, of course, the problem with that is that once he leaves, then he takes he takes a notebook with him and, 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 it, and it goes. I, I think directors football are the way forward. It was explained to me once by Martin Yoll that the problem, we, we, we misunderstand them in Britain because what we tend to do is we have... A chairman appoint both a manager and then separately appoint a director of football. And he said, you know, the way it should work is that one appoints the other. So either the manager recruits the director of football to help him with transfers, or you have the director of football who recruits the manager. But there's a there's a sort of buy-in. So they they depend on each other, so they have to work together. And just finally, with Cathro, I, I think it's it, Cathro is exactly the the right type that Scottish football needs in that he's somebody a bit different, he's somebody new but he might be the wrong guy because from what I know from people who've worked with him, he has, you know, shortcomings and just in terms of, I think he's quite an introvert and I think he has problems you know, projecting his personality which is fatal for a manager so it, it might just be that he's the right idea just the wrong actual individual I could just squeeze this last question before my final question, it was the front row here Vincent thank you Thank you. Um, I'm a Crystal Palace fan reeling from the departure of Big Sam and I wondered if um, rather than the incredibly predictable list of candidates that we're now apparently searching through you could nominate a replacement for Sam from left field who will come in and tear it up. This is, this is, this is your question as our Allardyce correspondent as a Sunderland fan. It's a good title. <laughs> um... Well, I mean, I don't think it's, it, this maybe isn't that left field. Um, I, you know, he's clearly hanging around England looking for a job, but I think Lyndon Slutsky would be a great appointment. Um, I, mean, I think he did a great job at, at Seska. He's a very smart man. The fact he's, he's sort of come here to learn English um, you know, with, with a view to getting a job. Uh, I'd, I'd love him to come to Sunderland. Um, 
No, David Moyes. Have David Moyes. We'll, we'll take... Let's, let's <laughs> Just a couple of minutes left. So my final question, we've already uh, raised the spectre of the Muppet that is John Terry. What, in your experience, in your careers, has been the most hubristic act by a player, manager, or person in football that you've witnessed? Um, this was actually a few months ago. This, uh, it was at Crystal Palace, actually, in, in the, after... Was it the Middlesbrough game? I think where they won one nil quite recently. Uh, anyway, he's, do, he's doing his press conference like, like you know, Big Sam, explaining exactly how much of a genius he is, uh, and you know, in, in, in every single dimension. And you know, and, and so so he's, he's in a good mood. He swaggers off, and uh, in the press room at Crystal Palace, there's um, there's a, there's a plate of pies which they which they put out at, at half time. For for you know the, the the pudgy journalists like like ourselves and um, he, he sees the plate of pies and you know obviously you can see the thought process going in. He said that's a pie. I like pies. I want a pie. Goes over, <laughs> uh, picks up a pie. But this is the thing. It's now sort of 30, 45 minutes after the final whistle. The pies were put out at full time, so at half time, and they're now tepid at best. So he takes a bite. He goes, "Oh, that's not very nice." Goes to the bin and spits it out into the bin. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that, that's how I, you know, if it is, you know, to be the end for for Sam Allardyce, that's how I like to remember him. <laughs> Jonathan Northcroft. Um, well, Dan, Dan, you you've written a, a, a lovely book about the delights of modern football uh, or football generally, and I don't, I haven't actually finished it yet. So forgive me if this is one of them that's in the back end of the book. But for me, one of the delights is is meeting footballers in a supermarket or just seeing footballers with their shopping. I always love that. I was delighted recently to find that uh, Leonardo Ajoa uses my local uh, Sainsbury's in Leicester. It was just a brilliant moment. Thought I'd, I've arrived now. I used to see Mascarano in this uh, supermarket that I lived near in, in, in Liverpool, who would always sort of walk around with, ex it's exactly as you'd expect, it was frozen burgers, it was chips, potato waffles, you know, sort of, that's kind of stuff, yeah, but the, the hubristic act was, was El Hajj Juf, who also used that supermarket, and, you know, it wasn't enough for him to have a gigantic sort of blacked out 4x4 four four with the personal number plate Jufi written all over it. <laughs> And it wasn't enough for him to, you know, ignore the normal parking rules and just park in, you know, I don't know, the parent and child bit of the disabled bay. He used to park that four by four at the door where the trolleys are <laughs> to the point that the doors would actually be permanently opening and shutting because he was, he was in the... Jufi's in town, Jufi's in the supermarket. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, Carl Court was banned from a Tesco in Newcastle for... Um, I actually feel he, Carl Court had a very domineering, I don't know if it was his wife or, or partner, uh, but she persuaded him to try and jump the queue in, in his Tesco. And there was sort of, apparently there was this long argument where he's going, I can't do it, I can't do it. And eventually she persuades him to, at which he gets banned from Tesco for life. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's not what I was, uh, was going to say. Um, just, just a quick show of hands. Has anybody heard of David Rush, the former Sunderland striker? One person. Two people. Well, that's actually that's two more than I was expecting. David Rush was, a, he was just a daft lad from Sunderland who was moderately good at football. Once scored twice against Brighton. Uh, he scored um, he scored against West Ham in the he scored the winner against West Ham in the ethical fifth round replay in '92, which was, gave him this kind of slight moment of fame, which went massively to his head. And he, he um, slight digression. Dave, who's one of the co-owners of uh, Blizzard with me, who, who was here last year, who's not here tonight. 
he used to live quite near him. And uh, I won't say David Rush did this because I realized there'd be legal implications, but he was certainly part of a group of people who would go around to Dave's estate and shoot them with air rifles. Um, so um, he's a daft lad from Southern, not that great at football, gets ideas very much above his station, ends up at Hartlepool, uh, and he gets, he gets done for, I don't know, speeding or whatever. He loses his license. Then he gets caught uh, driving without a license. He goes to court. And his, his defense in court, this is a man who only two of you have heard of. His defense in court was, but I can't take the bus. I'm a legend. <laughs> On which note, we'll have to end. Uh, thanks so much for coming along tonight. But most of all, a round of applause for the three Jonathans. Thank you. <laughs>